the only thing I have on my wall is a, a picture of my family with the quote underneath it, no other success can compensate for failure in the home. And that one quote stopped me from being a workaholic and it's helped me to prioritize my life. You have the desire to create financial freedom, but you also want to make a powerful, positive impact on the world. This podcast exists to tell the inspiring stories of men and women who have achieved both, people who do well and do good. Discover proof that individuals have the ability to make a massive impact. Brought to you by your host, Dorothy Ilson. Welcome everyone to episode 16 of the Do Well and Do Good podcast. My name's Dorothy, I'm your host. And before I introduce today's guest, if you and I have not yet connected, I would love to chat with you one-on-one. I really wanna get to know the listeners of this show and figure out how I can make this more valuable for you. So to schedule a quick 15-minute slot to chat, head over to our free Facebook group. You can find that at dowellanddogood.co backslash Facebook. Once you're in the group, you'll find a pinned post right at the top with a link to my calendar. So now today's guest is none other than David Fry. David was once a senior VP for a $500 million company, but he found that working for himself was a lot more fun and surely a lot more profitable. So for the past two decades, he's been guiding entrepreneurs as the author of numerous marketing training programs, including the Small Business Marketing Bible. After he had a kidney transplant, though, David really turned his focus towards health and fitness. He's written 21 books on the subject that he sells online through his habit-building program called The Willpower Secret. And when it comes to giving back, David really walks the walk. In addition to extensive volunteer work in his hometown of Houston, David helped to start a charity called Village Impact that to date has built 11 primary and secondary schools in Kenya. Now, if you heard our episode with Rachel Miller, we actually learned a lot about Village Impact. That was the charity that she nominated for her episode. And so I think it's really, really exciting that today you're going to get to hear from one of the people that was really on the ground at the beginning, helping to form this organization. I know you're going to be so inspired by my chat with David. So without further ado, here it is. David, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I am thrilled to have you here. Thank you, Dorothy. So actually, in preparing for this interview, I learned that we have something in common. I'm curious. So I studied accounting, did my internship, and accepted a full-time offer at PwC, and then ended up calling them two weeks after graduation to tell them I couldn't come because I realized I didn't want to be an accountant. So it sounds like you have a relatable story. Is that right? That is so crazy. I got a master's degree at BYU, which was like at that time ranked uh, number two in the nation. And I sat for the CPA and I, and I uh, passed it all in one sitting. Through all that, I, I, de- I determined I did not want to do accounting. <laughs> <laughs> so I've never done a journal entry in my life. That is so funny. I know, I know. I just, I, I laughed when I heard you tell that story. And it's, you definitely got a lot farther down that path than I did, you know, going through a top master's program, passing every section of the CPA. So when you were faced with that feeling in your gut that told you to just, you know, call it sunk cost and go a different way, 
How difficult was it for you to make that decision? Uh, it was pretty easy, actually, because I spent six years in the Navy, full-time in the Navy, and I was an electronics technician when I was in the Navy. So I had a lot of technical background. And so when I was in, um, in my master's degree, my actual master's was an emphasis in information technology. So I could have gone the auditing route. I could have gone the tax route. But, I, but my emphasis was information technology. And so what I did is I just I worked for the same accounting firms that everybody else works for. I just worked over in the technology area. Okay. So then, you know, after you, you know, you passed your CPA, you decided you didn't want to keep going in accounting. What came next for you? Well, I joined a a big firm. Yours was PricewaterhouseCoopers, mine was Arthur Anderson. And I worked there for about seven years. And then a client made an offer I couldn't refuse. So I went with that client and they merged with a German company within the year. And they gave me a, a severance. And it was a pretty good chunk of money. And I thought, you know, I didn't have this money yesterday. And I'm, it doesn't really matter to me if I have it tomorrow. I can go get a job. So I thought, you know, this is the time to start my business, my own business, something that I've wanted to do for a long time. And uh, that's what got me into the entrepreneurial world. You know, I think it's so valuable, David, to talk about how people first got started when they're brand new to entrepreneurship. Because I know for a lot of people listening, they either have a nine to five job, but they have entrepreneurial ambitions, or they'd simply like to earn more money outside of their job. But it can really be difficult to figure out where to start. So after you got that severance, you decided you want to do something on your own. What was the first thing you did? And how did you decide which direction to go? <laughs> well, <clears throat> I wanted to start a marketing firm because I love marketing. And um, I did some marketing uh, in the past. But in the meantime, I got seduced by the internet. I went onto the internet and I started reading these long-form sales letters. There weren't many back in those days. That was back in the year 2000. But I saw these guys selling ebooks and I thought, man, they're making money selling these ebooks. And so my wheels started spinning in my brain. I'm like, what kind of ebook can I, can I write and sell online while I'm trying to start this marketing company? And I was a miserable failure for the first year. In fact, I continued to live like I normally lived. So I burnt through $120,000 before I ever made my first cent wow. online. <laughs> yep. But after that, I kind of got the, the, the swing of things. So the internet's been good to me. So what was that first ebook? It's so funny. I'm almost embarrassed to say it. But at that time, I was searching on goto.com and I typed in Pitbull. I don't even know why I typed in Pitbull. Maybe I was just... I don't know why. And there was a ton of searches, like hundreds of thousands, I think of over a million searches for a term Pitbull, but no one was advertising on it. So I thought, you know what? I'll go down and I'll, to the library and I'll study a little bit about Pitbulls and I'll, and I'll write a book about Pitbull training. And so I called it Pitbull Secrets. And I took five books from the library <laughs> about Pitbulls and I kind of uh, whooped out this ebook within a couple of days and I put it online called the Pitbull Secrets. And I ended up selling tens of thousands of that book. And it was terrible. I feel bad about it now because I didn't know anything about it. One day, 
on Channel 11 here in Houston, it was reported that there was a lady in the north side of the city who had three pit bulls and the pit bulls had attacked her and killed her. And I got a phone call from that television station asking me questions. Are you the David Fry, the author of The Pitbull Secrecy? I said, yes, I am. He says, well, have you watched this, uh, what happened yesterday to this lady? I said, yes, I did see that. That was tragic. He said, well, we'd like to be at your house in about 30 minutes to interview. I'm like, oh, <laughs> hold on. <laughs> what? <laughs> and I uh, referred them to an actual dog behaviorist, uh, a professional whom I knew in Houston and, uh, and didn't think anything else of it. And about two hours later, knock came at my door. I opened the door and there's a camera crew staring right at me. I was like mortified. <laughs> so they, they interviewed me for about 30 minutes. And that night I watched it and I was on there. And my clip was about, I think it wasn't more than maybe 10 seconds. Wow. Man, I even sounded smart. They even made me sound smart on that. Well, it's it's so interesting because it sounds like you didn't, you know, have a big passion for pit bulls or anything like that. You just kind of stumbled on this topic. Is that right? Uh, right. But you know, I'll tell you where I made my, my real money. At the time, I had started a, mar- a marketing consulting firm and I got a call from a, a marketing coach here in town uh, I had been referred to her by somebody and she wanted me to come down and do a little half hour lecture on marketing for coaches and co- consultants. So I did. And to me, it was just basic one-on-one marketing stuff. And But all those guys were on the edge of their seats. They weren't marketers. They're just people who wanted to make an impact in, in people's lives. And I was driving home and I was thinking, man, these guys, that's a hungry, starving crowd. And I know how to do all this stuff. I've got a consulting firm. I've gotten clients. Like, why don't I invite them down this weekend? I'll write a really in-depth outline. I'll just record myself as I'm teaching them, make a product out of it. And I did that. And I made a, a product called the Coaches and Consultants Marketing Bootcamp. And this was back in about 2003 and was, as far as I know, the very first coaches marketing program on the internet at that time. And that thing took off like a rocket. I made like 15000 the first month. And eventually, I was making 30000 a month from that, that, uh, that product. Wow. And that's what kind of solidified my, my career in internet marketing. How did you learn all of these skills in, in marketing and specifically internet marketing? Because it sounds like... I mean, I assume you didn't have any experience on that side coming out of Arthur Anderson. No. Back in those days... The, the granddaddy of marketing was a guy named Dan Kennedy. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, he's really overshadowed because of the internet. And there's been you know, such an explosion of really good marketers because of the internet. Back in those days, there was two guys, Jay Abraham and Dan Kennedy. And Dan Kennedy really produced more marketing consultants than anybody ever. And he's like a legend. And I learned a lot of direct response marketing through him. Okay. Yeah, I definitely recommend anyone listening who is interested in learning internet marketing. David is absolutely right. They really are sort of the the godfathers of this whole world. So that's incredible. Did you have any big failures early on? I mean, it's... Heck yes. So, okay. So I didn't tell you about the project 
after Pitbull Secrets, but before the coaches and consultants marketing boot camp. Okay. After Pitbull Secrets, I'm like, you know, I was only selling it for 10 bucks. And so I was like, I'm not making a bunch of money off of this. What can I make money off of? And I'm thinking, what could I write about? And it turns out that I was a flunky in high school. Out of 490 or 512 graduating seniors, I was ranked 497. I was terrible. I barely graduated high school. Eventually, by the time I got to college, um, I did really, really well. And I used a lot of different unique strategies that I kind of learned on my own. I thought, you know what? I can write a book about that, how to make good grades in school. And so I bought makethegrade.com. You can still see it because I leave it up there just for nostalgia. Hmm. Uh, makethegrade.com. And I wrote a book called Make Straight A's in School, 50 Proven Secrets for Making the Grade. And I put all my secrets in that book. And I created a couple of bonuses. And it was a complete failure. It was a failure. I spent a ton of money. I used to put ads in college newspapers thinking that students wanted this product. No, I had one sale, one sale. So I called up the guy. I'm like, hey, why'd you buy this? He says, well, I'm a student. I'm a straight A student. And I'm thinking, hey, you got to have something in there that can help me. So, you know, the people that really needed it didn't want to buy it. It's just the guys that were already making straight A's. They, they had the motivation to buy something like that. And then here it comes. Then I was watching TV one night. I saw a commercial for Sylvan Learning Center. Mm. Sylvan Learning Center is, is, you know, where you go after school to get more training on doing math and, you know, those types of things. And so a, a light bulb went off in my head. Sylvan Learning Center. I ran to the computer. I typed in Sylvan Learning Center. Nobody was advertising on the keyword Sylvan Learning Center. I thought, they have national advertising. I bet a bunch of people are going online typing in Sylvan Learning Center. So I went and looked at the keyword count. Tons of key, tons of people were searching for it. No one was advertising on it. Including Sylvan? Even Sylvan wasn't at the time. <laughs> wow. No, this was early in, in the internet days. Mm-hmm. And so I created this web page that said all these great things about Sylvan Learning Center. And then at the bottom, I had a big link that says, if you would like to learn about an alternative to Sylvan Learning Center, click this link. And overnight, I started selling six to seven to eight to 10 units of this product overnight. And that product caught, you know, at the, I think I was charging like $80 for it. And so selling five or four, five or six of those a day, you know, I was on the verge of going back into the corporate world. That thing saved my butt. And, uh, and oh, I, I have to tell you, I totally changed the sales letter. So the sales letter was to students. I changed the sales letter to parents. Uh, parents will buy that stuff. Students will not buy that stuff. So the letter was to the parents. And you can go to there, makethegrade.com and look at it. Oh, it's just to parents. Wow. And it totally changed my world overnight. I think there's a couple really important lessons in that. I mean, first, that at the end of the day, the market dictates what's going to work and, and what isn't. I think so often people you know, put all of their energy, time, money into something without actually proving out, you know, do people want to buy this? And what you did is absolutely fascinating because you realized, okay, students don't want to buy this. If students care about getting good grades, then they're probably already getting good grades. And, you know, if they don't, then they're never going to buy your thing anyway. But who does care about 
kids getting good grades, the parents. And so it's, it's interesting because so many people would just give up after that first attempt didn't work. I almost gave up. <laughs> it was close. What was it that drove you forward and, and got you to take that next step and think, wait, let me try this other angle? Well, just that. I mean, I was sitting there one night watching that. But, you know, I was in a, I was, I was, I had a coach at that time. It's the only time I've ever really paid for coaching, which is, I'm not bragging about that. It's probably not a good thing. But Jonathan Mizell was my coach. He's kind of a legend in the internet marketing world. And he said, uh, Dave, you need to, you need, you just let that dog die. I remember him telling me this over the phone, just let that dog die. So I was about to let that dog die until that night I was watching that. TV commercial online. But you know what? With that, uh, another thing it teaches you is that you constantly have to have your eyes open. You constantly have to be learning, listening to audiobooks, listen, watching YouTube videos, constantly taking stuff in because something might help you. Some small thing, one sentence somebody says might click. It might have a breakthrough for you. Mm-hmm. And it so often does only take one thing. You know, I think we can get in the habit of almost binging on personal development and really implementing none of it. And so if you read a book that really inspires you or you, you know, learn something from a coach, all it takes is just actually implementing one critical thing that can transform your business or create a business <laughs> where there was none. That's right. So Talking a little bit more about mindset, what beliefs about money did your family instill in you growing up? Uh, that's an interesting question because I was really a middle-class family. You know, I'm, I'm 55 right now. So I grew up in that era where everything was, you know, it wasn't the extremes that you see today. So I was a middle-class family. My dad owned a gas station. I can remember many, many times that's where I worked. I, I worked at my dad's gas station. But I can never remember going out to eat as a family. Uh, I can never remember going to a store to buy clothes. I had um, older brothers. So all my clothes were hand-me-downs from my brothers. I don't ever remember. I, I remember one time getting something new. And that was this awful little outfit for Easter Sunday. <laughs> it was these shorts and this just, it was just terrible. But other than that, I don't, I don't remember getting anything new. I never got an allowance. My allowance was me going to work at my dad's gas station. Right. I, that's what I, I had to do. So the frugality of my parents and I think the fact that I had to work every day for my dad really taught me, A, the value of money when I did have it. And it gave me a really strong work ethic. I, I don't ever remember having any being afraid of work. And <clears throat> I have a son who's 21 now. And I told him growing up, son, never be afraid of work. I mean, he has that drilled into his brain. Never be afraid of work. Never be afraid of work. Because, you know, teenagers are always trying to get out of work. Like, son, don't be afraid of work. This summer, he is selling pest control door to door, which is, which is the hardest mm-hmm. type of marketing that there is. You know, belly to belly, door to door, down here in Texas, where it's super hot and <laughs> super humid. So I'm really proud of him that he learned uh, that work ethic too. What's incredible about door to door is it forces you to push through that feeling of having person after person tell you no and learning how to keep going. And, you know, it really only takes, if you're doing door to door sales, you don't need every person to say yes. You need maybe one in every 10 people or 15 people or whatever it is to say yes. And 
when you run into a situation in your life, which is, it happens over and over where you hear no and you can either turn back, give up, you know, go back to your job or you can push forward and work to get that yes. Um, that skill is really invaluable. Yes, it is. You know, my son wanted to quit after two weeks mm-hmm. and he just, he was just distraught. And I said, son, how many cells do you have? And he says, I've got nine cells. How many doors have you knocked? And he knew because they have to keep stats, 1,200 doors. I said, let's do some math, son. And uh, I said, do you know that you're making over a dollar on every door that you knock, whether they're there or not? I said, son, just go out and start knocking a bunch of doors because every door means a dollar to you. And he got better. So his, his numbers, his ratios started getting better. And so just a little reframe kept him in the game. And he's so, he's about to finish in a couple of weeks. And I, I, anyways, I'm real proud of him. I kept telling him, you know, you have no idea how much this is benefiting you, how much you're growing. You will know later on in life, but you have no idea how much this is benefiting. <laughs> he would say, yeah, dad, tell me that. <laughs> I'm out here sweating and everyone's saying no to me and yeah. chasing down the street. He's had people do that. Anyways. What would you say is the biggest misconception that young people have about achieving financial success? I think just this generation just wants it a bit easier. Mm-hmm. What can I say? It's just the truth. My own kids included. They want things easier. That's all I can say. Yeah. I don't want to say that they feel privileged or, or anything, but this generation just expects more for less. Mm-hmm. And the world has to teach them. You know, I finally told my wife, when he goes out there, the world is going to teach him what we couldn't. So for anyone who maybe does have some negative beliefs about money that they've either gotten from their parents or, or elsewhere, what advice would you have for someone who is looking to turn around a lack mindset or rewrite, rewrite negative thought patterns around money? Oh, I don't know. But I know this. Small wins compounded over time can completely change your identity and, and thought process and beliefs. And that is in any area of your life. Any part of your life that you want to change, you can do it through achieving small wins and proving to yourself that you can do it. There are other, you know, there's a lot of aspects to your question, lots of aspects. As an entrepreneur, you have to reinvest in your business. You have to invest initially and then you have to reinvest in your business. And a lot of people are very scared of reinvesting in their business. I was one of those people. I did not want to hire my first employee. I had this financial mental block of hiring somebody thinking that, I don't know, I was just scared to. I was scared to put out that amount of money. And then I read something from the late Corey Rudel. He's, he's passed away now, but he's like one of the godfathers in marketing. He says one of his biggest mistakes was that he did not hire his first assistant fast enough. And if he had to give someone advice, he would tell them, hire your first assistant fast hire somebody who is, is of high enough quality that, that when you pay them, it's got to hurt. It's got to really hurt you. So when you do that, that helps you to create a new and different mindset. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I answered your question. There's so many aspects to that. You can go deep in a lot of different areas. Well, you answered a question that uh, I'm definitely particularly interested right now as 
I'm starting to grow out a team in my business. And I found that one thing that I have a lot of difficulty with is giving up that control and trusting people to you know do things to the to the standards that I would you know do them myself. So any thoughts about that, you know, how to get over that kind of mental block and learn how to delegate and and really trust people to support you in your business? That is so hard. It's so hard. You know what? The lucky entrepreneur is the guy who doesn't know much. <laughs> because when you're smart and you're skilled in a lot of different areas, you don't want to give them any of them up. Mm-hmm. You, you feel okay to give up or hire somebody out for the, for the real weaknesses that you have. Like if you can't do graphics at all, you have to hire somebody. Mm-hmm. I, just so happens I can do graphics better than most people. And so I end up not hiring out. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. And Marlon Sanders, who's a good friend of mine, another one of the godfathers in the marketing, he told me once, Dave, I have this theory on hiring people. It's called the break-even theory. He says, if you are at a place in your business where you can break even within the first month or two of hiring that person, go ahead and hire them. Test them out. And then if they don't work out, you fire very quickly. You Mm -hmm. fire them fast. Don't drag it out. You cannot change a person within even with with a lot of training within such a short period of time it just doesn't work so i think again with experience it just comes over time once you get over the hurdle of hiring your first person oh also the principle i've already talked about is don't go cheap because when you go cheap you're going to hire some you're you're probably going to hire somebody that's not going to do the level of work that that you're expecting when you put out the money to hire someone who's a real pro, when you get back something where you go, wow, like I couldn't have done that. That's when you know that that's what helps you get over that. Let's put it that way. And you just, you just have to have the money. But it brings up another question. When you don't have that money in the beginning, what do you do? Well, that is a conundrum because you have to, you know, in the beginning, you're hustle mode. Mm-hmm. You have to do a lot of the stuff for yourself. So you get to a point where you can make a little bit of money and, and the business model proves itself out where you have some confidence in hiring that person to do whatever it is you need to do. So you have to be really uh, strategic on what you hire out and what you don't hire out. The higher level stuff that you can do that would be more expensive, you don't want to hire that out in the beginning. You just want to do it. The lower level stuff that takes a lot of your time, maybe you do want to hire that out, but not to someone who's permanent. We live in a day where you can hire somebody in Bangladesh to do certain things who's really good at it just right online. My web guy, I think he's... I don't know. He's from, he's from a foreign country. And um, you know, all I have to do is go click, click, click. And he's online with me and I'm telling him what to do. Right. We never had that years ago. And now we do. Well, and it's, it's easy to get caught up as an entrepreneur in spending so much of your time in the weeds, you know, in the, the busy work that at the end of the day does nothing to actually grow the business. So I think what's so important about what you said is that, first of all, for 
technical, any technical skills or, or really, even if it's not technical, things like graphics, things like copywriting, you know, hire someone who is better than you <laughs> and, you know, pay them what, what they're worth. But then the key, I think, is making sure that you take that time you save and spend it on activities that are going to grow the business. You know, don't fall in the trap of spending that extra time on, you know, more of that just in the weeds <laughs> kind of, of busy work. Right. So, David, how has risk taking played into your success? Well, listen, if you're an entrepreneur, all of your success as a result is taking some sort of risk, right? I mean, pretty much everything we do takes some element of risk. But honestly, I've always been very frugal and careful with my money. My wife's been a good steward of our money. We were debt free many, many, many years ago because we, you know, paid double into our home and you know, we took advantage of some tax laws and put away money for our kids' education. So that's all paid off for. I take risks, but I never take risks that could bankrupt me. Mm. So some people do that. And I think it's more power to them. I like to take moderate risks where I'm pretty sure where there is a good return mm-hmm. or I'm, I'm highly confident of it, but I would never take a risk that would uh, bankrupt me. I did one time, twice I did. And I, man, I've, I had to learn my lesson the real hard way. And I won't get into those stories, but don't take a risk that would really do some serious financial hurt to you. So then David, when did you first recognize your drive to make a difference and find greater purpose in your life through giving back? I want to tell you a story. I was living in Bolivia. I was a missionary for my church. I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. Some people call us Mormons. And I was a missionary down in Bolivia. And I remember I was serving out in what they call the campos, out in the, out in the country. And um, I used to watch these little kids with their family and wonder why during the day they were not at school. Then I'd ask their parents. And they would say, you know, my kid doesn't have shoes. And you got to walk to school to, to do it. So the kids would stay around the house all day. In other instances, the school was too far. And they didn't have bikes. They couldn't walk five miles down to the school every day. And in other instances, the parents needed help in their business. And so they kept the kids home. And so I thought, man, I would, I would love to build a school in Bolivia. So I can remember, and it was in 1988, I even drew a picture of it. I drew a picture of the school. I think it was called the Instituto Americano de Educación de Bolivia. And uh, it was just a picture on a white piece of paper. And that was kind of a dream of mine. There was a school down there that I really admired that that was uh, built by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And there was part of it was a school and the back part of it was a business where they made tortillas and eggs and these staples. And so the kids would work behind the school, after hours, on the farm, whatever it was. And, uh, and the school would sell the goods downtown. And that money was used for the tuition for the kids. And so it was a very self-sustaining school. And I thought, man, that is so cool. I would love to do that. I want to do that someday. I remember I came back to the United States and I had that picture with me. And I actually hung it in my kitchen. So that every day I passed by it, I would see it. And so it wouldn't, so I wouldn't forget. 
And that happened for 20 years. Every time I passed by it, I was like, maybe next year I've got enough money to do that. And finally, I walked by it and I said, there is no next year's. I'm going to do this this year. Somehow I'm going to do it this year. And lo and behold, just a couple of weeks later, I got a call from a lady named uh, Amy McLaren. I knew her husband and she wanted me to help start a charity or sit on the board and you know help drive that charity. And I told her at the time they were, it was called World Teacher Aid and they were funding teachers. And I told her, listen, I will come on board, but we need to build schools. Like, I don't want to just fund teachers. I want to build schools. And so when I came on board, we started building schools in the country of Kenya. We recently changed the name to Village Impact. And I've been, I've been uh, involved in that cause for quite a while now. And you've built 11 schools in Kenya. Is that right? Yes, 11 schools. And I want to delineate that these are big schools. These are not small schools. A lot of times you'll hear, we're going to build a school in Africa and it's going to cost $25,000. That is a very small classroom. We build schools that are like $170,000 to $200,000. These are large schools that house 500 to 800 uh, children. And we build them on what's called IDP camps. Back in 2008, there was a presidential election and all the tribes started warring against each other. And there was a great slaughter across that nation. And uh, to stop it, they started all these internal refugee camps. So they would take these people and they'd moved them all the way across the country to separate them from their tribes so that it would stop all the warring. And they would put these people on just like a piece of land. And that's it. That's all that was there, piece of land. And they called it an IDP camp, internally displaced person, basically an in-country refugee. They're a refugee within their own country. And that's where we build our schools. And when we build a school, it becomes this hub and the center of their little town. And it starts to thrive. The school is what makes the little village start to thrive. And it's amazing to see that. Could you share a little bit about how the school really does uplift more than just the kids? Actually, in episode 10, our guest was Rachel Miller, and she actually nominated Village Impact as the nonprofit for the Do Well and Do Good Challenge for her episode. So we heard a little bit about this, but I would love to hear your perspective on how creating the school really empowers everyone in that community from the kids to their parents who can now, you know, sell things by the road or, um, you know, create additional economic opportunities. Could you talk about that? It's a beacon of hope. Listen, these people, when they get pulled away from their, you know, friends and loved ones and just slapped down on a piece of land with nothing there, they live in the, in the most dire poverty imaginable. There's no hope. They don't see their next day as being any different than that day. And that day is a day of extreme struggle. Every day is a day of extreme struggle. And so there's no hope. When you put a school there, now they start, now there's a new hope in the village where they can send their kids. And, you know, if you were to ask any parent what would be their greatest dream in life, it, it wouldn't be about them. It would be about, I dream that my children dot, dot, dot right? Because that's who we love the most in our world. So when they see 
the opportunity for their children to get the education that they never could have and really have a possibility of going in, out of that little village and making a living for themselves, it gives them great hope. And when that happens, when hope, when you have hope somewhere, then the light starts to enter people's minds and they can dream a little bit. And we're starting in our schools a little room. And the room is called the dream room. And in that dream room is where we will be showing videos of interviews with local people who own businesses. So the guy over there that shines shoes or the person over there that fixes clothing or the guy over there that sells wood on the side of the road or you know these little micro businesses, we'll go and interview them and ask them how they got started and, and what are the benefits of owning their own business and things like that. And then we show these videos in these dream rooms and the children now start to expand the possibilities in their mind that they never knew even existed before. Remember, everything starts as a thought. And if you can grow that thought in the minds of anybody, your business started as a thought in your mind. Any good thing starts as a thought. Well, anything really, even bad. So for these children, they get to see something that's possible for them because people are doing it. They see people doing it. And it's their people. It's not like some white guy over here in the United States, Tony <laughs> Robbins, talking about you know, building a business. It's people right there from their own little town or nearby. And they, they start to think, well, I can start a little farm or I can buy some chickens or I can raise a few pigs or I can buy a cow and sell milk. And they start thinking and, and dreaming and hoping and that can turn into reality for them. P Nothing can turn into reality for somebody who doesn't believe that they can do it. And it's sure not going to happen if they don't even know it's a possibility for them in their lives. Belief is such a critical first step. David, are there any specific kids whose you know, stories have been especially meaningful to you that you would like to share? Well, thank you for asking me that particular question. I wasn't expecting that. Of course. Years ago, when I first went to Kenya, we went to, uh, I went with Stu McLaren. That Stu and Amy McLaren are founders of Village Impact. And I was with Stu and we were over there at an opening celebration of a school. And he took me over to an orphanage called Mama Tunza's. And there's just this one lady. It was funded by some other charities and she was taking care of you know, well over 100 children. And some were babies and others were teenagers. And when it's an orphanage, it doesn't mean that their parents died. Many people dropped off their kids here because they, they had no way to take care of them. Mm. And so they would bring them to this orphanage and just leave them on the steps. And there was, a, there was a room where there was high school kids in there or junior high school kids at the time. We went in there and I started talking to him. I told the guy I was with, I said, while we're here, why don't we teach them a couple of skills? So we taught them how to look into people's eyes because, you know, young Kenyans, they don't have the self-confidence to be able to look up in someone's eyes, and especially a white person. I said, you know, when you're looking at somebody, look up straight in their eyes. And we practice that. I taught them how to do a handshake. 
I taught him how to say hello to somebody with confidence, just these basic skills. And as I was leaving, I told them, I said, if you guys were smart, you'd probably get my email address, keep a hold of me. And I left. (laughs) (laughs) And before we, before, I was just wondering who was going to be, you know, uh, courageous enough to do it. And before I got in the car to leave, one kid came out. His name is Protus, Protus Udori. He came out and got my email address. And when I got back to the United States, there was an email from Protus. And we kept in touch for a little bit. And then um, he needed help through high school. So when me and my wife were back over there, I went to go help. uh, I went to go to the high school to help pay for his tuition. And all of a sudden, three other guys showed up that were his friends from the orphanage that were there that day. And they needed help too. So we put these four kids through high school, but two of those kids, Protus and Duncan, I offered to send them to college. So we sent them to college for a couple of years, but it was, it, it was terrible because A, the education they were getting was not good. B, they would have long periods of time between their semesters where they really could do nothing. And I was funding them doing nothing. And I'm like, ah, that's not working. So I found a uh, school called the Moringa School, which is a computer programming boot camp school. They're very popular here in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so I put them in it. And just now they started their, they did their five weeks basic and now they're starting their 15 week advanced course and they're hanging in there and they're going to come out becoming full fledged computer programmers and eventually get very good jobs where they get paid pretty well over there. And these are kids that grew up in an orphanage that never really had any parents that were just one in a hundreds of kids. I'm just so proud of them. I can't even tell you how proud I am that they have made it this far. So that's my little story. David, that is absolutely incredible. And it's such a lesson that one person can have just an absolutely transformational impact on on someone else who who really needs help and hasn't had the kinds of opportunities that that we've had. I mean, I think that so often we take for granted all of the opportunity that is available to us here in the United States and the fact that you were able to, you know, meet these boys and really become a mentor to them and and now completely alter the trajectory of their lives. I can only imagine how fulfilling that must be for you. Yes, and it will benefit their families and families after that. But I want to tell you, probably one of the biggest mistakes, the biggest mistakes I made was waiting 20 years because you can start doing it right now. I mean, heck, you can go to kiva.org and, and start donating to kiva.org and just you know roll, keep rolling your money back into businesses and it can grow from there. And it doesn't require a lot of money. And it gets you in the habit. Habits are what create our lives. You look at any successful person, I can tell you that they are, they are a creature of their successful habits. So if you want to you know, learn how to give money, start giving, but start doing it right now. Don't wait till you, uh, okay, now I made 100000 this year. Now I can afford it. No, you could have afforded it a long time ago. 
I have a, a person I've been mentoring uh, for quite a while. And now you know, the guy's making more money than me. And he wants to start doing, you know, giving his money away. So I gave him an opportunity to help these two boys. And he struggled with that. He struggled. And eventually the guy makes, I think this year he's going to probably make 700000 but he, but he only gave 250 bucks, which was totally cool with me. Mm-hmm. But it showed you one thing, that it's hard in the beginning. It's hard to let go of your money, even with good intentions. It's hard. You need to have practice with that and have been doing that and teach yourself how to give. So don't wait till you have a lot of money. Start doing it now. You can find places where you can give on a monthly basis where it's not a lot of money and start today. Even if you just take, you know, two meals a month that you might have eaten out at a restaurant and eat those meals at home instead and, you know, give $25 a month to an organization that's really meaningful to you, starting small, there's there's nothing wrong with that because like you said, it's going to create that habit. And then as you grow in your career and start to make more money, then your giving can grow, but you'll already have that foundation of, of knowing that that is important to you and that no matter how little you, know, you feel like you might have, you know, even $25 a month, that compounds. And if, if if a hundred people listening to this podcast, you know, all do that, then that's a that's a significant impact right there that will only continue to grow over our lifetimes. And I just want to add one more thing to that: it doesn't have to be money; mm-hmm. it could be your time. If you were to ask a rich man to give a million dollars or a month of his time, he'd give you a million dollars, right? The real the real sacrifice is your time, and you can do that locally, very easily. There is not one city or town in America that you can't go volunteer your time on a monthly basis to something, even if it's an hour or two hours. Well, and I know that's something that you do extensively in Houston. Uh, could you touch just for a second on your volunteer work there and, and how giving your time has, has been a piece of, of what it means to you to give back? Yeah. Now, and I'm not going to get religious on anybody, but I am very religious and I belong to a church and, and, and that provides me with lots of opportunities to serve people. I mean, on Saturday, I'm going to tile this person's floor because they're not able to, but those opportunities come to me all the time. So if you're a member of some local church, you're going to have ample opportunities to go and volunteer. And if you're not, there's still a lot of opportunities like I regularly volunteer down at the Houston Food Bank. Houston Food Bank is the largest food bank in the world. And um, there's always something to do at the food bank. And it's very easy, easy work. And it's fun work. It's something that I do. There's another place called Nora's House. And I am a kidney transplant patient. And Nora's House downtown, it provides housing for families of those people who are, whose loved ones are having transplants, in Nora's home, you can go and be the chef for the day. And so I'll come in with my family or maybe sometimes even another family and we provide dinner for the people that are there. And usually that might be about 60, 70 people. And that's a ton of fun. And there's just other things that I do, but they're all around us. They're all around us. All you got to do is say, Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that period of time in my week 
my month, and I'm going to dedicate it to go doing something for somebody else. And, and making that a habit is uh, just like you can with money. You can make it a habit to give an hour a week or uh, you know, a few hours a month to volunteer somewhere in your city. And that really does make such an incredible impact. So David, thank you for everything that you've shared with us today. Uh, I know I am incredibly inspired listening to you and I'm sure everyone else is too. Unfortunately, we are running out of time. So I'd like to move into what I call the impact round. So I'm going to ask you a series of short questions and I'd like for you to respond with basically the first answer that pops into your head. You ready? Yes, ma'am. All right. So who has been the most impactful person in your journey to do well and achieve financial success? Well, Amy and Stu McLaren, the founders of Village Impact, they're the ones who got me involved in doing that. And so I love them. I love their hearts. I love everything about them. So Amy and Stu McLaren, I would say. So would that be... The first one is um, achieving financial success. Then my next question was going to be in, in feeding your drive to do good and make an impact. Would Okay. Financial success. Honestly, I really don't know. I don't look to any gurus. It's just... I don't... I don't know. Some people listen to Tony Robbins. and He's gotten pretty crude in, <laughs> in his recent years. <laughs> but I don't, I don't... I don't know. I guess Dan Kennedy, right at the very beginning, he was very impactful. His writings and his teachings very impactful on me. David, when you're having a bad day, what do you do to get yourself out of the funk? I go to the gym and this is going to sound funny, but I listen to the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. (laughs) If you would have told me that when I was 17, listening to Led Zeppelin, I would never would have (laughs) laughed at you. How things change. You'll get the lead out every now and then. But um, that music... Those hymns that I'm accustomed to, just they have a spirit about them, and I have a spirit, and there's this spiritual connection, and it just it brings peace and joy to my soul. It lifts my spirit. It makes all my worries. It puts them into perspective. You know, worries don't go away, but if you can put them into perspective, they make it a whole lot easier to deal with. Mm, I love that. David, then what is one book that you find yourself recommending to people often? Here we go. Okay. I'm not a book reader. <laughs> I just started <laughs> doing audio books recently. And that's because I'm, you know, I'm studying willpower and self-discipline and anything like that. You know, I, I love the scriptures. You know, I have a habit of reading them every day. And so whatever religion you belong to, I, I, and, and if you practice it, I honestly believe that should be the very first book you're reading. So if you're Muslim, you should read the scriptures for that religion. If you're Christian, the Bible, I read the Bible. I read the Book of Mormon. Those are my very first readings of the day, I guess you would say. Awesome. And then last one, David, if you had to pick one piece of advice that you would say is the best piece of advice that you've heard related to success, what would that be? When I first started my business, I was a workaholic. I used to have my office in my, inside my home. And so the siren song of email and everything just used to pull me into that room. And I was a workaholic. And um, then I heard a quote from a guy named David O. McKay. And the quote goes like this, no other success can compensate for failure in the home. No other success can compensate for failure in the home. The only thing I have on my wall 
other than whiteboards, is a, a picture of my family with the quote underneath it, no other success can compensate for failure in the home. And that one quote stopped me from being a workaholic and it has brought and it and it's helped me to prioritize my life. It helps me to prioritize all the activities of my day because no other success really can compensate for failure in the home. That's so important. Well, thank you, David. And as you know, here on the show, we have what I like to call the do well and do good challenge. So this is where we encourage our listeners who want to give back to contribute to the nonprofits that are nominated by our guests. I know that you have chosen to nominate Village Impact. So could you share just a few parting words about that organization and why it's so meaningful to you? It doesn't, doesn't just build schools in Kenya. It builds schools on IDP camps where these people, they're the poorest of the poor people on earth. And you know what? Financially poor, because uh, I'm not going to say they're spiritually poor. I used to live in Bolivia for a couple of years. There were some poor people there, but they were some of the most wealthy, spiritually wealthy people that I've ever met. And sometimes poverty does that for you. We build schools on these IDP camps and help these young people who never, ever would have got an education any other way. And we focus on holistically in that village. The first thing we do is we build a primary school. The second thing we do is we build a secondary school. Meantime, we build a well and we bring electricity in. After we do that, we start teaching entrepreneurship. And right now we have a program that we're going to be implementing where we're going to start micro funding and businesses within each one of the villages. And so it all goes toward that. You change one child, you can change a whole generation. Amazing. Well, lastly, David, before we say goodbye, where can our listeners go to learn more about you, to learn about the willpower secret, of course, and follow your content? I'm on Facebook at fb.com front slash D-F-R-E-Y, D-F-R-E-Y. I'm pretty active there, probably more active than I should be. (laughs) (laughs) And willpower secret, you just go to willpower secret dot com, not the S, just willpowersecret.com. And you can watch a very long video sales letter that's very engaging. Just put your wallet somewhere else when you go to watch it. (laughs) I love it. Well, David, thank you for giving your time to be on the show today. It has been such an honor to have you. Thank you, Dorothy. I appreciate it. I'm honored. All right, everyone. That is our show today. Now, before I sign off, I want to introduce any new listeners to the Do Well and Do Good Challenge. There are two ways that you can participate. So the first is by contributing. And in this episode, David talked a lot about how you can start where you are and give what you can to start to cement that habit of giving. And if that is you, if that's something that you want to do, then contribute to any of the nonprofits nominated by our guests, including Village Impact, and send a screenshot of your receipt to challenge at dowellanddogood.co. When you do that, your donation is going to be included in our monthly tally of the tangible impact that this podcast is having. The second way you can participate is absolutely free, and that is by voting. See, inside of our free Facebook group, at the beginning of each month on the first or the second, we vote on which of the nonprofits nominated the month before 
that I will then donate 10% of my advertising agency's income too. So it's an awesome way that you can make your voice heard. And you'll also then be inside the group where I'm sharing tips, ideas, resources, and more to help you both increase your income and your impact. So head over to dowellanddogood.co backslash Facebook to join us inside the group. Thank you again for listening and I'll see you next week.